Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I am once again doing a pre-recording before I release this podcast. As I've been talking about, Greg and I have been talking about, we are doing a month on debates, how to debate civilly with one another. This is a debate that Greg uh, engaged with, with a gentleman named Mark Fodale back June 2nd of 2015. We wanted to re-release this one. Greg and I had intended to do an update to this. We wanted to do a fresh look on this debate, give you something a little new. Unfortunately, um, there was a uh, medical emergency in Greg's family, and so he was unable to record this week. So we decided to go ahead and release this one because we had it um, in the bank. We do not want that to become a regular habit where we're just re-releasing old content, even though we think our old content is good and worth listening to. We do want to bring new material to you. And so uh, we hope you enjoy it. Hope you'll drop lots of feedback for us and let us know exactly what you think. So until the next time, enjoy. And at the end, we'll rock the Casbah. Welcome to a new episode of These Go to 11. Let's turn it up. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to These Go to 11, an unchurchy conversation about everyday faith. Please make sure you like, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcast platform. This not only helps us to get our content out there, but also helps us to find out what you, our faithful listeners, think. Gentlemen, welcome back to These Go to 11. I'm Nathan Bell, and sitting across from me in our new studio is Greg Homeslice Dutcher joining us. Greg, say hello. Yes, uh, this studio puts the home in Homeslice because the studio is actually my office at church. And Nathan, just to sit in a chair and actually look at you, I know, <laughs> is incredible. Uh, Nathan and I were in the sound room sitting. Side by side, yeah, <laughs> craning our necks, but still keeping our mouths in front of the microphone. This is nice. Yeah, it's comfortable, yeah. relaxed. Um, and we also have joining us Mark Fodale, who is a new time friend to me, longtime friend of Greg Dutcher. Mark, say hello to everyone out there. Hey, everyone. I'm uh, strangely jealous I'm not in that home studio there. I know. <laughs> we, we can change that, brother. You're up in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. That's, that's not too far yeah, at all. That's a hop, skip, and a jump away. During the summertime, we'll have to... Absolutely. Down at some point. Absolutely. We'll uh, tell you what, Mark. We'll let you come down here and take Nathan and I out for some crabs. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that's that—that's how we'll work it. Thanks for the privilege. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we do, Mark. We're about serving people here, so we're going to uh, give you that you, privilege. It sounds like you do it well. We, <laughs> yes. yeah. I have been told that I love being served. <laughs> But we'll save that for another another podcast. <laughs> so, Sounds good. Uh, Mark, uh, just go ahead for people out there uh, who don't know you. Give us a little background information on you, what you do. Uh, Greg obviously told us where you're from, but your friends, family, and all that fun stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I wear two hats. Basically, I'm the uh, pastor of preaching at a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America, called Providence uh, PCA in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. 
My other hat I wear is I'm uh, in full-time campus ministry with a ministry called Disciple Makers, and I wear a number of different hats there. I am married to Shannon. We'll be celebrating our 22nd anniversary in August. Oh, congrats. Yeah, I have four kids, uh, Catherine, Jordan, Laura, and Rebecca. Catherine and Jordan are in college. Laura will be entering Gettysburg in the fall, and Rebecca will be starting her freshman year in high school. I live in Bethlehem, PA, close to where Jesus was born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're a carpenter as well, aren't you, brother? <laughs> I wish, brother. Yeah. I wish. I, <laughs> so does my wife. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, Mark is sure. joining us on this podcast because uh, it is June, and we are starting our Hot Topic month in June. And so our first hot topic, um, and actually this is a bit providential as we talked about, Greg, not only things being moved around and pushed around with uh, our last, uh, our podcast before last time, but also with this because uh, Mark wouldn't have been available otherwise except for today. Yes. Um, So Mark Sweeney, our associate pastor, had to um, kind of push his schedule around so he couldn't do tonight's, which was originally going to be the creation debate, That's old right. and young earth. Um, and so because of that, we were able to get Mark and t- and were able to talk about our second hot topic, which was uh, baptism. Yes. Credo versus pedo baptism. Yes. And mm-hmm. let, let me translate, uh, Nathan, what you just said, since there were two Marks mentioned there. Yes. Uh, the, the Mark we're talking to tonight, oh. obviously, Mark Fodale, who, who we've just heard from. Thank you, Mark. Then Mark Sweeney is our executive pastor. So I just want to interpret what Nathan said. Mark Sweeney doesn't love Jesus, so he didn't do the podcast tonight. Mark Fodale loves Jesus um, wow. al- almost as much as I do. If he if he shared the same baptism position, he would love him as much. But Gosh, Mark- I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and, and just think, what I can't wait for is the end of this discussion debate when Mark is on his knees and we're playing like the Hallelujah Chorus and he has had a second conversion it, in it, his When life. I'm crawling to the local swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> Throw me in deep! Except for the fact that we that we were just talking offline, and Mark has recently been teaching on this subject where Greg came in and admitted, yeah, I haven't thought about this in years. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking today, my wife, Mark, on my way here said... Um, Hey, Mark Fodale, she, he was a, a good student. I said, oh, yeah, 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 Mark was sharp. And she said, so how are you going to engage him in the debate? Which I realized very quickly was an implicit slam. Um, <laughs> you know, I said, well, thanks, Lise, for your confidence in my knowledge of this subject. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, when you told me you've been teaching a class recently on the Westminster Confession and covering yeah. this very issue, um, <laughs> Let's just say, brother, we might have technical difficulties tonight. But as I told you, Mark, I'm not afraid to resort to ad hominem arguments and attack you personally and you go after it, your brother. character. Bring it on. Okay? Good. Good. So the listening audience can know if I'm really flailing when I start talking about, you know, you're ugly, your mother dresses you funny, <laughs> things like that. They'll, they'll um, know gotcha. you're gra- grasping at straws. Yes, yes. And oh, oh, I know. I got to say this, Nathan. I told Mark before we went online. A few weeks ago when we were talking, I think it was to Les Lanfear from uh-huh. the Reform Pubcast. I, I think it was that podcast where I mentioned the first time I ever drank with another Christian Yeah, yep. was Mark Fodale. 
And yeah. he, he, because the week we graduated, brother, I think it was your suggestion. Hey, there's a little pub on on uh, Main Street in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. Let's go yeah. down and grab a cold one. There were three or four of us, or maybe five or six of us that mm-hmm. went down that were graduating spring of 97. And that was you, brother, that unleashed yeah, and it the wasn't floodgates. a suggestion. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a demand. Yeah, that's, <laughs> <it>. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Come to think of it, I don't remember you feeling out any liberty conscience issues. <laughs> it was just sort of, yeah, let's, we're going and meet down there now. And, uh, yeah, that was a... That was a start of a beautiful adventure. That's right. So, so what you're saying is he's starting you off, and I'm going to be the one to finish you off, yeah. right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can get some references to immersion and sprinkling That's in that right. pub story somehow. <laughs> we'll figure out a way to tie it all together. Uh, all right. So this is going to be, um, as as everyone out there can tell, this is going to be um, very lighthearted and spirited, um, but hopefully also um, very rooted in uh, in the Bible. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to start off, uh, Greg, you're going to go ahead and take about, um, two or three minutes. Um, try not to go more than, uh, four sure. and, uh, explain your position on credo baptism. Um, and then we'll turn it over to Mark so he can do the same. And then we'll just go back and forth about two minute rebuttals, just explaining, um, you know, where you disagree and why, and, you know, trying to, in a Christ loving way, tear each other's arguments apart. Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds great, man. So you, you want me to start? Go ahead and start us All off. All right. You, you got the clock on me. I got the clock. All right. Well, uh, the position that I'm defending tonight, representing, uh, as you said, Nathan is credo baptism. Uh, I, I used to call it adult baptism and realize it's not really a, a proper term. Um, I've baptized children as young as seven or eight, mm-hmm. even here at my current church at Christ Fellowship. Now, quick personal aside, my wife and I have our own feelings on that. Uh, we, the earliest we've had any of our children baptized were 13. All of them at this point, even my six-year-old, if you were to ask her, <laughs> what she believes in, uh, she would say all the right stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to say that to us, we understand that the credo is meaningful. It means that there is, as far as we can discern, not infallibly, nobody ever can, mm-hmm. that saving faith um, is the first step uh, in terms of the baptism order. In other words, that you are baptized because uh, you express faith in Christ to save you, uh, that the Holy Spirit brings about repentance, brings about faith. I know Mark and I are in agreement on that. We both come at this mm-hmm. from, from from a Reformed uh, perspective, that God is the author uh, of our salvation. He does the work. Uh, so yep. there's, there's great agreement on that. But the idea of credo-baptism uh, is what I believe is... Uh, not just taught in Scripture, but is actually narratively exemplified, uh, chiefly in the book of Acts, uh, when we see, uh, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, which is what we would call sort of the first post-Pentecost baptism or the day of Pentecost baptism, uh, the text tells us that those uh, that were hearing Peter preach heard the word, they were cut to the heart, they um, ask, what must we do? And, of course, Peter walks them through, obviously, repentance faith, and baptism. I think that is the pattern that has been set forth in Scripture. I think it's apostolic. I think that is uh, prescriptive for the church, uh, and that, therefore, the, the, the rightful subject of baptism is someone who has professed faith in Christ. 
I would say one more thing is that uh, the idea of guarding the communion table, which, Mark, we, we can talk about as well. Um, I, I don't know if I do this perfectly every time. I more often than not try to say during a communion service that this is a meal for believers mm-hmm. uh, so that we, in a sense, fence the table, as some people call it, by you know stating what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, that you want to drink this in a worthy manner, which I take to mean with understanding, knowledge, who Christ is, what he has done, what the cross means, what the work of redemption means. Uh, and just as the person is to express that kind of faith prior to taking communion, I see the other ordinance or sacrament, whichever you would call it, I don't really care, um, uh, you know, whatever it's called, mm-hmm. um, that there would be that same guarding, in a sense, of baptism. So obviously, all that to say that baptism, I believe, is for the believer, the professed believer in Christ, and that it should not be given uh, to infants, uh, to those that have not yet expressed saving faith in Christ. Of course, Mark and I were talking before, it's an intramur- intramural debate. It's not seconds. a salvation issue. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not a salvation issue. Um, you know, obviously, the guys I quote all the time, you know, R.C. Sproul, uh, Tim Keller, J. Ligon Duncan, uh, are men that would uh, disagree with everything I just said. Not everything I said, but the final conclusion, and are, would agree with Mark and I think he's in, in pretty good company. All right. Thank you. Um, Mark, if you can go ahead and take uh, about four minutes, explain your view and position, and then we'll go ahead and uh, let you start breaking apart Greg's. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, all, all of that to say, I um, I feel like I came to the position of pedo-baptism, in other words, baptizing infants. I didn't come to it easily. I grew up in a religious tradition where... I think I reacted very much to the ritualistic nature of it. I don't need to mention the tradition. My guess is a lot of your listeners come from it. So therefore, I yes. swung to the other side and was very much uh, in favor of believer baptism. After college, I went to a Bible college out in the Midwest, believed in believer baptism. I remember going to a church service where they dedicated infants. And I remember looking at it going, this seems like baptism just without water. Right. Yeah, so that caused me just to rethink a lot of things. And I just spent a long time. Reformed theology, I came to, it was a hard-fought battle. I think my position on baptism has been a hard-fought battle. What I appreciate about the pedo-baptism position is two things. Number one, it takes into account the whole counsel of Scripture. Secondly, it answers the question of what do we do with infants in the church? In terms of the biblical, my biblical thinking, it's this. My understanding is that God has always worked through covenants in the scripture, starting all the way back in Genesis, and that the covenants have always included promises to families. Uh, classic one is Genesis 17. Uh, circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the old covenant. And the connection is that in the new covenant, and the fulfillment of circumcision is, in my mind, baptism. I, I think that Paul makes that at least somewhat clear in Colossians uh, chapter 2. So my, my understanding is this, that it's not primarily a sign of belief in Christ as much as primarily a sign of inclusion in the covenant. So 
Infants are included in the covenant because they're children of believing parents, so they're subject to the blessings of the covenant until such time as they might prove that they are not truly of the covenant, as we find in Romans. So it answers the question, what do we do with kids? It also answers the question, how does the whole counsel of Scripture inform how we view the sacraments? So I would say that that pedo and by the way, we, we baptize adults as well. So I think we do credo and pedo-baptism. Yes. Yeah. But my understanding is that what pedo-baptism does is it helps us understand the continuity of God working through the covenant and how the connection between circumcision and then baptism in the new covenant and how that is not only for adults, but is also for the children of believers as well. So in short, that's my position. Gotcha. Gotcha. And Mark, I, I think I figured out what it is. I think, brother, you are sitting on a squeaky chair. Do you, are, are, that, are, are you hearing that, Nathan? Yeah. I think, brother, you're on a okay. squeaky chair. That's what it All is. Right, I will not move anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you were getting big. Greg, your argument was getting me excited. I was <laughs> you were. You were I, I, I have that impact on people when I talk about credo baptism. They just okay, can't okay. get I will enough. move no longer. I will raise my hands. But yeah. that's it. Yes, okay? yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Mark, I want to give you about two minutes to um, uh, start talking about um, Greg's position, why you think um, it is incomplete, it's wrong. Um, maybe why he should be doing pedo-baptism. Yeah, I, I would say very simply, and honestly, Greg, very humbly, that I think the weakness of the position is it relies on, um, as you said, it's a more narrative understanding rather than a principial understanding of the Scripture, and it rests extremely heavily on Acts and some of the stories there rather than the whole council of scripture. So I would say, wow, th there's a whole bunch of the Bible that is not taken into account in terms of how to deal with the covenant, with the signs of the covenant, with sacrament, with baptism. So that that's my that's my initial that's my initial reaction to it. I don't know if you have any response okay. or am I allowed yeah. to ask him if he has a response to that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure. No, that's um uh, that's good, Mark. And just to say I, I meant to say this in my sort of opening statement. Uh, you may or may not remember, Mark, I think we talked about this back in our seminary days. I yeah. I, uh, I, was a PCA guy. I was actually, when I went to biblical, I was just entering the, the licensure process at that point. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I... Um, I, it's, it's interesting. We sort of went in opposite directions. I, mm. um, I, I had an agnostic church background growing up. Uh, yeah. I mean, really a non-church background, uh, because I was agnostic, I should say. So yeah. for me, the, the debate was never a very sexy thing. It was just sort of, oh, okay. You know, uh, never having been in a church, I don't really have a conviction either way. When uh, my friend Matt Smith, who's been a guest on this podcast many times, uh, led me to Christ, he was actually attending a very liberal Methodist church, which, of mm. course, uh, practiced, uh, you know, infant baptism. So, yeah. sure, that's just whatever, cool. And then as I got into college, I was in Campus Crusade, met a bunch of other Christians from other denominational backgrounds. I said, oh, there's another thing. Okay. Yeah, okay. And, and I would hear people sort of argue both sides. And um, right. in fact, when I was at Towson, where I went to college, most of the kids either went to Grace Fellowship, which was sort of your large megachurch 
kind of your Willow Creek's, you know, seeker sensitive model um, that did uh, immersion, you know, credo baptism. And the other church that about half the kids went to was Central Press, which was an unusually evangelically faithful PCUSA congregation. Wow. Uh, So I was exposed to it early on. Uh, One thing I will say, Mark, this is more of a general point. I find it interesting as a parent, and this is more from a parental perspective Mm -hmm. than than that of a pastor's, that both of us as fathers probably feel the need to mark two special occasions in our children's lives. One is closely connected to their birth. One is closely connected to their profession of faith. So, yeah, exactly. Where, where in your circle that would would uh, in essence be putting the water uh, near the birth end, and um, you know using the the non water (laughs) or not using the water at the confirmation end, the confession end. um, Mm -hmm. I feel those same two uh, sort of parental burdens to mark those occasions that in our you know in my setting. It is a dedication, uh, which, uh, you know, you, I'm sure, have used or heard many times. Uh, my Several of my PCA friends you know, asked me, hey, how was that dry baptism your kid had last year? Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, that's right. Uh, you know, and, and, of course, uh, only my daughter, when she was 13, is my only of the four to be baptized just a few years ago, um, mm-hmm. sort of marked what, what we might call in another setting. You're setting a confirmation end of right. things. So in one sense, we both have the same instinct. To mark mm-hmm. these two occasions, but ultimately we're looking at what what the Bible says. Right. Um, I would say for me, Mark, the the first thing to fall when I pulled out of the PCA, which I'm greatly indebted to, I cut my theological teeth there, was yeah. this issue of um, uh, infant baptism, pedo baptism. Um, okay. I interestingly at my church, though, Mark, we have a lot of people that come from a reformed covenantal background. We do not require uh, anything for membership related to baptism. Right. Uh, Same which, with us. Okay. Neat. Neat. And that that um, I've got a few Baptistic friends that that really bothers uh, because mm. they say, "Great, how can you do that?" I mean, this is this is what marks sort of the visible, recognizable um, celebration of a person's faith. It should mark their entrance into the church, um, that sort of thing. And I say, well. Uh, we've got folks that can articulate a very orthodox understanding. I said, if my, if my friend Mark Fodale showed up, you weren't a pastor and wanted to become a member of our church, uh, I would say, Mark, tell us your view on baptism. You would explain what you just said. We would say, well, that's well within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, brothers in Christ, you know, uh, since the Reformation, uh, have been kicking this around for a long, long time. Uh, right. So that, those are just some caveats there that mm-hmm. I, would, I would throw out. The thing for me, Mark, is it, it seems to me that the argument for baptizing households, I know sometimes yeah. it's called, you know, you know, oikobaptism, you know, the right. word for uh, households, which would include infants. Um, to, to me, I'll just give you my, my take. It comes across yeah. a little more uh, of like a theological deduction than, mm-hmm. a, than an exegetical observation. Um, okay. That... In other words, I feel like there's, man, this sounds too harsh. So to feel free to tear it apart. For lack of a mm-hmm. better word, a few gymnastics that have to be done in mm-hmm. order to go from, okay, let's start with the Abrahamic covenant. Let's consider Abraham, who of course believed and then had the sign applied to him. 
And then his children, who didn't obviously yet believe, could have the sign applied to them. I get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it seems to me, when I look at the New Testament, the, the emphasis, particularly in the book of Acts, on faith first, baptism second, makes me not draw that continuity connection as strongly as you would. Uh, that's probably my, my, my greatest sort of knee-jerk reaction to it. Mark? Yes. Oh, uh, Greg, here's my thought, though. Would you say that Acts then becomes normative for the church now? Um, I know what you're getting at, because I, okay. I, I too, Mark, uh, I, well, yeah, I, I, I should answer it uh, <laughs> instead of just uh, playing the politician here. I would say it is normative um, for the church now with a lot of caveats, uh, because, uh, you know, I could easily, uh, use that same argument to say we should still have apostles, uh, sure. because we have those in the book of Acts. So that's normative. I don't think that's the case. I right. simply would say what I see narrated in the book of Acts is reinforced prescriptively in scripture. Although Mark, I'll be the first to admit there's not much <laughs> to me. There's not much in the epistles about it. Uh, yeah, I know. You know, I know. Uh, uh, ironically, yeah. in in First Corinthians one, uh, the one time Paul is you know talking about who he baptized, oh Crispus and Gaius, uh, can't remember if I baptized anyone else after that. You know, we get that great verse where he subordinates baptism to the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one seventeen, God did not send me to baptize, which is clearly hyperbole because. Obviously, Paul knew of uh, Matthew 28 and the Great Commission um, that he was indeed sent, but he says compared to the proclam the the proclaiming of the gospel, baptism mm-hmm. has to take you know uh, you know second fiddle. So anyway, go stay with me on the normative stuff. Well, yeah, and all of that to say, I would say that probably we're both doing a fair bit of gymnastics at this point, wouldn't you say? So in other words, yeah. What I would say is, sure, there's not a, I can't find a verse that says baptize infants, and you can't find a verse that says don't. So we're trying to make this <laughs> yeah, yeah. work within the thing. It's interesting that both of us started at different points and ended up differently. So I started, I think, at the believer baptism point or the credo baptism point. But the more I tried to understand the whole flow of scripture, I thought that the the weight of the argument went toward the infant baptism position only because it took into account the whole council and didn't rest almost exclusively on one book of the Bible. No, no. And I, I think that's fair. That's sort of, you know, we, we often hear Mark the term sola scriptura, uh, right. a term less quoted that comes right out of the Reformation is tota scriptura, that we, mm-hmm. we in essence have to not just say, yeah, scripture alone. We have to talk about scripture in its totality. It's Right. What does the entirety of the Bible teach on this subject? Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, we come up with all sorts of goofy uh, cultic practices, right? You've got right. Uh, you know one obscure reference in First Corinthians about baptism for the dead uh, mm-hmm. leads some groups to you know baptize the deceased. Uh, you've got uh, all, all sorts of things happening like that. So I'm I'm with you on that. I, I would say, Mark, that the the, the issue to me is, you're right, we are both doing some gymnastics. We are making some uh, deductions. Um, 
I would say, yes, I can't find a verse in Scripture that says, don't baptize infants. And I would concede that. However, I would also equally uh, uh, assert that I don't see one example of an infant being baptized in the New Testament, but I do see many examples of professing believers being baptized uh, in the New Testament. So that being the case, I feel like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm making a few less deductions than your position has to do. And do you think that's a fair statement or not? Well, I think it's fair. I think there's a good reason for that. I, I think it's because the inclusion of infants in the covenant was always assumed. It was assumed from early on, from the early pages of Genesis. In other words, a sign of circumcision was always applied to young males, to infant males. So that was never in question. I think what's happening in Acts is that the new covenant community is now starting to spread to the Gentiles, to new people. So, of course, things are going to happen there. But what happened, what you see in the early church is that once the first generation got established, then I think my understanding of church history is infant baptism became the norm until the 1500s, you know, the time of the, the Anabaptists and stuff. I mean, Origen, Augustine and all of them wrote that infant baptism is what we what we do. Sure. So I think you're looking at you're looking at a unique stage of church history. I think we would say the same for all the miracles, the different things that took place in terms of the supernatural gifts, that that was a unique stage in church history. But once the covenant got established and the church got established, then it becomes a mature church and it begins to operate the way it's always operated. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. It does, Mark. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I guess my question then, uh, what... Yeah. What does it mean practically uh, uh, for you, brother, as a as a Presbyterian pastor, father? Um, what does it mean? How do you understand, like when when your children were were little, they were born. Mm -hmm. You've got these little yeah. infants; they're baptized. What is the difference between those children, your mm -hmm. children, and the children, mm -hmm. is say, in unbelieving homes? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that, in a sense, sort of boils down to, okay, what, what's the practical effect of this doctrine? I think for me, uh, in terms of baptizing our kids, what it meant is that Shannon and I, my wife and I, could look at our kids as being in the covenant, recipients of God's blessing and his word, until such time as, hopefully they don't, but until such time they would deny it. So we actually taught them to pray at early age, mm -hmm. and we expected that God actually heard their prayers mm -hmm. because they were part of the covenant. We taught them to read the word. We expected them to sit in worship and to listen to what was going on. In other words, our expectation for them was the same as any member of the covenant community. So, because I've been to churches that, I guess, logically, they would consider little children heathen Mm -hmm. or pagans, but they actually don't treat them that way. Sure, sure. So they're in Sunday school, and the kids are taught to pray, and they're actually taught that God will hear their prayers. But theologically, if they're not a Christian, then God isn't listening to their prayers right now. Good point. He isn't, he isn't hearing them. So, you know, and the other thing, too, is, you know, we're, we're told not to dedicate to the Lord an unholy thing. Mm -hmm. Well, if an infant really is unholy theologically, then in in Lord's Day worship, 
We have no business dedicating. Oh, <laughs> oh, the gloves are off, Mark. That was well, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, 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 I don't mean that pugilistically. Yeah. But I, think that, I think that's the practical outworking. Like, you got to figure out what are you going to do with these kids? Yes. And so I don't know about your church. I mean, typically in the Reformed church, well, I would say I'm not a fan primarily of children's church. Uh-huh. Because I, th I think we'll have the kids in there. I mean, Calvin said, and this is this is a bad paraphrase, but it'll get the point. Calvin said, if you're going to baptize them, then you got to put up with them. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. it's fine. So they're they're members of the covenant. So they sit during. Um, we don't take them out because now it's adult time. It's this adult Bible study time. Like this is family time, just like around dinner table you have different ages you have different ages so i think what baptism has done for me is it's helped me to theologically understand where my kids are and then practically therefore how do i treat them how do i look at them uh good oh go ahead Nathan. well i was just going to say um greg do you want to respond to the dedication thing Cause, yeah, because that, that was good. It was good, actually. Because, Greg, you really have to respond to that one. Yeah, I do. I do. Brother. Yeah. I, listen, I will be the first to say, brother, uh, I'd much rather uh, talk into this microphone tonight and defend credo baptism <laughs> than I would, honestly, infant dedication. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would say this. That goes yeah. to my earlier point. That is more of a parental and pastoral instinct that, yeah. well, what, what do we want to do? And the way we present it here... At our church, Mark, when we do that, I, I don't try to show a biblical precedent for infant dedication um, mm. because I really don't think there is one. I, you know, I've, I've seen where people have done that with Hannah offering Samuel. That is such right. a stretch exegetically. It's, mm -hmm. it's a completely different, to me, an historically unrepeatable event that should not... <laughs> should you know mm. turning him over to the priesthood as a child because she has prayed and this barren woman has received this great mercy from God. Um, I just had this mental image of people turning their children over to you. <laughs> yeah, and so, <laughs> to learn. you know that because I'm giving them back, <laughs> brother. I'm giving them back. Uh, I tell you, you, you just give me your address. I'll drop them off as soon as the service is done. I uh, so I, I would say, Mark, it is very much a, a pastorally applied prayer. Uh, with the congregation, let's mm -hmm. celebrate. You know, the Smiths have just had this beautiful baby girl, and we are thrilled for them as a church family. We see the joy that this has brought. We know that their greatest desire is not that their kid would grow up and you know just ace all their tests and go to a great college and, and right. get a great job. Their greatest desire, and that's what I ask the parents to um, affirm when we meet and talk about their child being dedicated, is that their child would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. So that's ultimately our congregational prayer. Uh, it's it, it's something we're doing to mark the occasion. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't really tie it uh, to a scriptural precedent. I, and frankly, others might disagree with me in my Baptistic camp. I just don't think that there is one. So I, I think that's a, a good point that you, you uh, made. I would rather uh, talk about praying for the child than dedicating the child. Okay. Um, yeah, that's fair. So, yeah, that would be my, my answer there. Um, I would say, Mark, that there are some differences, though, uh, mm -hmm. because I, I'm with you. I, I see continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, what we'd call the old economy, the new economy, whatever ever right. term we would want to use. And one of the things, Mark, and, and this is not to trap you, but there is a difference. There's been some kind of expansion, correct? Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was only applied to the male children. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, I'm assuming that, uh, and I know the answer to this. I'm just trying to trap you. That you do baptize female babies. Yep, that's right. Church. So yep. um, I'll just ask you why. Why moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament are you now including daughters as well as sons in this covenantal sign? Yeah, I, I would say, and I think that's really that's a great question. Um, because if, if I'm saying that there's a one-to-one correspondence, then there's a lot of things that we're not doing right. I, I would say that there is one-to-one correspondence, that what we see in the old covenant, it's a shadow. We see the fulfillment in the new covenant. And so, therefore, Jews were circumcised in the old covenant. The gospel now goes to the nations, male and female. I, I would just say it's expansive. You could say, well, why don't we just circumcise in the new covenant? You know, what's this thing about baptism? I I would say the Jews always practiced what we would call proselyte baptism. That seemed to be the sign marking inclusion in the covenant people. Mm -hmm. My understanding is for a while, circumcision existed alongside baptism. But as the church became more and more Gentile, the Jewish rites like circumcision were viewed as either unnecessary or even unhelpful mm-hmm. to the church. So therefore, baptism sort of eclipsed it as a sign of church membership or inclusion in the covenant. So I would just say that just as the, you know, the shadow points to the reality, that what we see is there's a narrowing in the old covenant and there's a fulfillment, there's a fullness in the new covenant. It's a good, I can't point to a verse on it, but that's no, just no, sure. sense of what's happened. Sure. And so, so what I do, Mark, is I would say, I share the exact same thing with you, that there's an expansiveness, uh, you know, as I think it's been, it's been attributed to Augustine. I'm not entirely sure he said it, but it looks great on a poster, you know, that the, uh, the, uh, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed, uh, as I, as I think I've heard it, whether that was Augustine or not, it's a great little, you know, pithy point to kind of show the connection between the old and the new covenants. But I yeah. would say that uh, I agree with you. It is more expansive. It is more inclusive. I say because national ethnic Israel as a geopolitical entity included certain promises like land promises um, mm-hmm. that were part of the Abrahamic covenant, you know, so that there's mm-hmm. this promise. Obviously, it's tied to the, uh, uh, you know, chunk of land Abraham is going to get his allotment and to his physical descendants as well. So I look right. at that and I do, I, I would agree that baptism seems to parallel circumcision uh, in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, signs, old covenant, new covenant. I actually right. emphasize, I might be a little unique in, in this as a uh, credo Baptist guy. I talk more about, I hope, the covenant of God's grace than I do the individual profession of the believer. Um, right. I think the individual uh, uh uh, conversion of the believer in his profession of faith is the is the overflow of the covenant of grace. But I'd rather emphasize the covenant of grace because I do think mm-hmm. it keeps it consistent. But what I see is, okay, so you're expanding it from males to include females, and I would agree mm-hmm. with you there. I mm-hmm. see a little more expansiveness since the church is not a geopolitical entity, but is rather, to me, the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. And I think you and I would be much 
closer in saying, I, I'm very comfortable, Mark, saying the church is a new Israel. I think yeah, that's... Yeah, me too. I think yep, that's first what, Peter. Yep, yep, yep. First Peter 2, Galatians, what, 6? Mm-hmm. Peace yep. be upon the Israel of God. Um, yeah, I'm with you. So I would say that the just as <laughs> the sign was given to physical babies in the Old Testament... I expand that to say that it's given to spiritual babies in the New Testament because we're moving mm-hmm. from the physical to the spiritual, from the earthly to the heavenly, from the geopolitical to the timeless and transcendent. So in yeah. that, I see the those that come to Christ, like I did when I was 16, or somebody when they're 69, it's as if they are being born, but they're being born again. And therefore, right. the, the covenant sign that was given to the physical descendants in the Old Testament is now to be given to the spiritual descendants in the New Testament. So that's the way I see the connection between those covenants. I I would agree with you that there is continuity between the uh, Old Testament sign of circumcision and the New Testament of baptism, but I think the the expansiveness in the New Testament uh, moves from the physical descendants to the spiritual. The other thing I would say uh, in... In, in keeping with it. Oh, I'm going too long. Yeah. Uh, so, Mark, I want to give you. I want to give you some time <laughs> yep. to respond to. Thank you, brother. To what Greg said before he goes into another point here. Yeah. <laughs> another sermon. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I was interested, but um, yeah, I, I would say this. I think you're right that it's it's more than the the physical descendants. It's the spiritual descendants. I mean, I think that has always been true. I just, for me, Greg, the struggle is why. In credo baptism, it seems like there's a need to limit the covenant to professing older people, being, uh, say, let's say, teens, younger children, adults, rather than including the families. That, that's a hard thing. I mean, one way to think about it is this, and maybe, I, I don't know, Nathan, if I'm allowed to do this, can I ask Greg a question here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, what, one of my struggles with with solely credo baptism is this. Uh, I think we agree, I hope, that to require repentance and faith before one can be given the sign of the covenant seems to be a denial of salvation by grace alone. Okay. In other words, the problem I have or have had with the credo baptist position is it seems to make intellectual understanding a certain level as qualifying, therefore, for the sign of the covenant. Whereas I look in the scripture and the sign of the covenant was always given by grace alone. Mm-hmm. So that that's just my, that's my difficulty. It's, it's, it's somewhat dangerous in my mind to say that one must respond and believe before they can receive the sign of salvation. I mean, I've had people say to me, wait a minute, why are you baptizing that infants? They have done nothing to deserve it. And oh. my answer is, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, none, none of us ever have. So I, I feel it, it limits the picture of grace that pedo baptism could bring to the table. No, I, I yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think that's a, a very good point, Mark. And again, you are emphasizing, and I think rightly, and I do think this is a weakness in the Baptistic camp, is that mm-hmm. we can emphasize the confession of faith to such an extent that we're really celebrating an individual's response more than we are the covenant, the promises of God's grace, 
and the great sweeping epic work of redemption. Uh, I, I'll throw it back on you and answer a question with a question, though. Yeah. How would you distinguish that? Don't you have the same problem in communion? Uh, because you are not letting, I'm assuming, 18-month-olds participate in communion, correct? Well, uh, in my ordination, I did take an exception to the confession. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah, I do believe in pedo communion. Okay, see, I, mean, I, I didn't realize that, Mark. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to have the kids at the table, might as well feed them. Yeah, so, yeah. Again, I would say if you're going to baptize them, then then let's feed them as well. Yeah. Now, what our church does is our, our, our session, our elders are of a different opinion. And I think, and there's, I think within the PCA, I'm not allowed to teach and practice uh, Pado communion, but I think at, a, at an early age, and we have accepted young kids, very young kids into communicant membership. So if you're, if you're not baptized, you're a non-communicant member, you're a member, but you can't have communion. But I would say as, as soon as a kid expresses their love for Jesus Christ and has even a cursory understanding of uh, what's going on in the Lord's Supper, they should be admitted to the table. Okay. So I'm trying to be consistent with that. No, well. no, Mark. And actually, I would, I'd commend you on that because yeah. you, you kind of took away my gotcha card. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, I man, know I, can, I did. I, and I'm I, smiling. <laughs> I was about to rock in my chair, but you're not letting me. <laughs> Dude, I'm thinking I got him on this, man. I got him up against the ropes. Same logic cannot be applied to, to communion. Now, but let me stay with you on that, Mark, a little bit. For it, go for uh, it. When we consider uh, Paul's teaching to the Corinthians mm-hmm. and his counsel that we would drink and eat in a in 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 a worthy way, um, right? I, you know, they're, they're trying to avoid us going into the deep weeds here on some some exegetical finer points, and we can urge our listeners to to look at First Corinthians, be Bereans, yes, on their own, and dig into this. But I would argue that yes, I do realize we've got some cultic practices that have been introduced uh, in here. But is it not a fair application to say if Paul is saying people that are misappropriating uh, communion, uh, they are doing it because their their knowledge of communion is severely skewed. Uh, therefore, he seems to be uh, suggesting, as I read those passages, that communion has to be rightly discerned. So now my question is, how can an 18-month-old, little curly-haired, diaper-clad kid rightly discern uh, the elements before him uh, at the table? And I'm curious yeah. about your thoughts on that. Uh, and Mark, I'm just going to um, just throw this out there. I want to give you a chance to answer this, but I don't want to get into a... Um, uh, thing on communion I here. Agree. So we're going to, yeah. as soon as you yeah. give Greg an answer, we're going to jump back into the baptism thing, but I do want to give you a chance to respond here. So see bro, he's yep. a good moderator. Yeah, he yep. is good. Yep. I, I would say Greg, that in terms of first Corinthians 11, I, I, I think I would disagree that what Paul is calling for is a theoretic or a theological understanding of what's happening. I think when he talks about the body, uh, particularly in, what is it? Verse 29, Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body. I think in context, what's going on in the Corinthian church is he's talking about the body of believers. In other words, they're coming to the table and they're warring with each other. The rich are having their food. The poor don't have anything to eat. And he's like, wait a minute. This, this is a table where we're all together. So to discern the body doesn't mean that I look at the elements and I understand that. But it's to discern what this is all about. And if you 
are not being united with your brethren, if you're not loving the people at this table, then you are not discerning the body. Okay. And I would say that an infant in no way is warring against their neighbor. They're sitting there content and ready to eat. Okay. Um, So we're going to go ahead. Um, I want to ask um, both of you um, the same question, um, give you both a chance to answer, um, and then have you kind of close things down because we are, um, we are winding down on time here. Um, So my question is um, I would like each of you, if possible, to furnish a verse or verses that you would look at in scripture and say, you know, this is one of my go-to verses to support my position and opinion, because you guys have talked a lot about, um, you know, the covenant and and paralleling the covenant between the old and the new Testament. But I would like you guys to each furnish one verse um, that you would point to and say, you know, for the listeners, this is, this is where I get my verse. This is why I believe what I believe. One of the many verses, obviously. And so you can go and look at this and, and see why I believe this. Sure, sure. Um, so, um, Greg, I'll let you go first since you started us off, and then and then Mark. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I give maybe two verses? Yes, absolutely. All right, great. Yep. Or maybe twenty seven. No, I'm. Just <laughs> uh, we'll see how this goes, Mark. I would say I, I was actually going to go here earlier, so I'm so glad, Nathan, you're giving us this chance. Uh, Hebrews eight to me is interesting because there is a reference to the new covenant. And of course, you know, there's not time to go into the context here, but of course, you know, in Hebrews, everything is better. It's the better than book and Christ is better and the new covenant is better than the old. Uh, And here we have the reference uh, from the prophets. uh, I'm in verse eight of chapter eight for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this is interesting. We've got some comparison here between, uh, and, and I'm using old covenant here in a very generic sense, Mark, because I realize we, yep. we could break it down Abrahamic, mm-hmm. uh, Mosaic, you know, um, uh, a Davidic covenant. I am using this in a very generic sense. Just, Go for it. Just for mm-hmm. time's sake. But in verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, And they shall not uh, teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least Uh of them to the greatest. So I understand that the new covenant, which Jesus says at the Last Supper, is is the new covenant in my blood that the participants in that new covenant are those who know him. All of them shall know me. The old covenant, one of the distinct characteristics is that it was admittedly mixed. So you could have uh, David, who, yes, he was a man after God's heart. His heart loved the Lord. I believe he was regenerated. And then you've got his children that are not. Uh, You've got a very, very much a mixed bag in the old covenant, purposely so. Again, I think that's because it's geopolitical, it's temporary, it's ethnic. And in the new Israel, we have spiritual babies that are born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the the key feature I see in the new covenant, to your question, Nathan, is that they all know him. So the participants of the new covenant are, I believe, not infants of believing parents, but are all active believers 
that all know them from the least to the greatest. The other thing I wanted to say quick is, really, it's more of a response to a common verse. You haven't used it yet, Mark, but in yeah. um, Acts 16. No. <laughs> Acts 16, and we've got the Philippian jailer. And for time's sake, I won't even turn to it. But uh, again, the listeners can test if I'm getting this right. When I was in the PCA, uh, and a very dear man, Michael Rogers, uh, who you may or may not know, Mark, who mm-hmm. uh, no. is at Westminster in, uh, in Lancaster, and a very godly man, great scholar, he said to me that um, the Philippian jailer was the one that did it for him because we've got him believing, and it's when Paul goes, when Paul and Silas go to his household after he's put faith in Christ, it's very intentional in the Greek. It's that he believes... It's not they believe, he believes, mm-hmm. and his whole household is baptized. So right. I thought, wow. The problem with that is to be consistent, it also says that they all rejoice together. Mm-hmm. So I simply believe that a passage like that, a household baptism, is assuming that the rejoicing that comes together is because they've all believed together. Otherwise, you have, to me, a very strange picture of unbelievers rejoicing with a believer for becoming a believer. Mm. Um, So I would say there is one example that has been put to me before that, well, Philippian jailer believes it's singular. It doesn't say they, it says he, and then they rejoice. I I just can't make sense of that exegetically, how unbelievers are rejoicing with him in his salvation. It seems to me they are rejoicing in their salvation because it is, and I'll grant it, assumed that they've all believed uh, in the same word that they've heard together. Yeah. Okay. Mark, That's a great point. Mark, I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, the last kind of words here before we tie everything up. Yeah, I, I would say the, the key scriptures for me, and again, I would go back to Genesis 17, 9 to 14, just talking about God working through the covenant and that the covenant was... Uh, given not only to adults, but also to children. I I think one of the key New Testament verses is Colossians 2, Mm -hmm. 11 to 12. Paul says, And him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. In, In that, I see that Paul is making a connection between circumcision and baptism. Another helpful verse for me or verses is Mark 10, 13 and 14. Greg, I'm sure you've, you've read through this and thought about it, which says yeah. they were bringing children to him. Jesus sure. said he touched them, permit the children to come, do not hinder them. Kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You know, in the original language, the word children, idea, uh, indicates that these children were infants. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the fact that they were, that they were brought. Um, so Acts 2, 39, the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off. Uh, and, you know, I could bring in the stuff about baptizing the households, but I think for both of us, it's an argument a bit from silence mm-hmm. and a little bit of assumption. So what I see is the verses in Genesis talking about the covenant, um, Colossians 2, Paul making the connection between circumcision and uh, and baptism, and sort of the the... I think the assumption, Jesus's ministry, that children are to be included in what's going on, that for me is is really very helpful. Mm-hmm. That's where we go. 
All right. Well, guys, thank you so much, Mark. It has been uh, wonderful sitting here and um, just listening to you guys go at this. Um, it was uh, it was great, informative. Um, so we really appreciate you taking the time to join us um, and sure. come online with us. So now, um, uh, hold on, Nathan. We yeah. haven't had we haven't had Mark's conversion yet. When, oh, right, right. When right. are we going to get that in? Come on, Mark. <laughs> well, We're waiting. When I was baptized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I got, can uh, I throw in one other thought? What other? Yeah, Is go for thought? it. All right, right on. Shannon and I, on our wedding rings, we have a verse inscribed, Jeremiah 32, 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And this is not at all meant to, to shift it. But I think probably for both Greg and I, that our confidence in parenting our kids, because it's an overwhelming thing to bring into existence a child that will last into eternity. Yeah, wow. Our confidence is that God is faithful to his promises, that he who began a good work will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So I think, Greg, both you and I are always calling our kids to repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah. All, yeah. Every day. So whether from the earliest age or as they get older. So anyway, just that's want a, to throw that in. No, that's no, a that's, great word, yeah. Mark. Thank you, that man. Is, that is good. Good. I feel... Um, uh, much you, more, uh, yeah, well, I'll say this, brother. I feel much more awake and alert to the issues. How's that for a Good. PC answer? Well, boy, and, you, you said almost nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I do that every week, brother. Um, and I think this was so great too, because it shows how two friends, um, who yeah. love Jesus can be on two different sides of an argument and still yeah. walk away, not agreeing with each other, but sure. still friends and yeah. still loving oh, yeah. Jesus. So, sure. um, thank you guys so much for, for demonstrating that for us. So, thank you. all right. Thanks, Greg, Mark. We just rocked the Casbah. Rocked it. Thank you again for listening to these go to 11 and unchurchy conversation about everyday faith. Once again, please make sure you like subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you ever find yourself in the Forest Hill, Maryland area, please feel free to stop by at 135 Industry Lane, and you can get all of our service times and information at ChristFC.org. These go to 11.